0: If you have your Bibles and want to join me this morning here, and um, we have one, I think this verse is on the board, but it's Genesis 15, I'm going to read verse 5 and 6 as we look at what has been called perhaps the most important verse in the Bible. Genesis 15, verse 5 and 6. Uh, He brought him outside, him is Abraham, and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. And he said, So shall your offspring be. Uh, Remember, he's talking to Abraham, who is 90 years old, and hasn't been able to have a child, him and his wife, uh, Sarah, even when they were young. So they're both aged and infirm and infertile. And yet God comes to him and says, come out and look at the stars. And so he does. And when he looks at the stars, he he views them and God says, so shall your offspring be. There are two stunning statements here in verse 6 one is he believed the Lord I mean I'm not even sure if you were 21 years old that you could believe God if he pointed at the stars and says that's your offspring that's how many you're going to have and the other stunning statement is that the Lord counted it to him as righteousness now that's also amazing And now, this verse, and this comes from uh, Dr. James Boyce, uh, who was a pastor in Philadelphia, in his commentary, he says, this is perhaps the most important verse in the Bible. Why does he say that? Why would you say something like that? Let me give you three reasons why this verse is so important. Uh, for one reason, it's, it teaches us how to be right with God. I mean, I know that sometimes we preachers, are try, we try to answer questions that people aren't asking. But this is a question you need to be asking. How do I get right with God? How can I obtain standing with God? And this verse tells us that it was that Abraham believed the promises of God and that's how he was counted righteous. Jesus in Matthew 6:33 said, "Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So seeking God's kingdom and his righteousness has to be number one priority. So here this verse is very important because it tells us how to do it. And it is by faith in God, faith in His Word, faith in His promises that no matter how infirm I am, I am to look away from myself to God's power and goodness as illustrated by those, the stars of heaven. A second... Uh, reason this verse is so important is because this verse provided the Apostle Paul with his argument against Judaism. And this is what you have in uh, Romans. the, The whole fourth chapter of Romans is about Genesis 15, 6. The entire fourth chapter. It's a commentary on it. And what Paul says is, as he debates these, he goes into synagogues and he preaches that you can be justified by faith in Jesus Christ. You can be declared righteous, counted righteous by faith in Jesus Christ. So he goes into synagogues where where the Jews, (laughs) there's going to be Jews in synagogues, and their view of obtaining righteousness is, first of all, by becoming Jewish. If you want to be right with God, you have to be a follower, a disciple of Moses. And the first stage is circumcision. That's the initial step into Judaism. If you want to be a proselyte or a convert and be a follower of Abraham, because Abraham was circumcised. Moses gave it in the law. You have to be circumcised. Paul comes along and in Romans 4, he says, Romans 4 and verse 3, what does the scripture say and he's looking back to genesis 15:6 he quotes it abraham believed god and it was counted to him as righteousness he he points his jewish arguers back to genesis 15:6 and then he goes on and he says in verse 10 of Romans 4, he says, how was it counted? Was it before he was circumcised or was it after he was circumcised that he was counted righteous? And Paul says it was before because he was circumcised in Genesis 17, but he's counted righteous in in Genesis 15. So Paul, in a single stroke, with a single verse, undermines the entire law of Moses' and the Old Covenant system by saying you can be righteous before Moses, before the law, before circumcision, before a single Judaistic ceremony. He was declared, counted righteous. Huh. And so the Jews immediately would say, well, maybe you can. You know, it's in the Scripture. Then he would share how, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you can be counted righteous. So this entire fourth chapter was Paul's argument against uh, when he would go into synagogues and he completely undermined the the whole Judaistic approach to the righteousness of the law being the basis of your being right with God. Here's a third reason this verse is so important is because it was the basis for the Protestant Reformation. Uh, And in the 16th century... Uh, most of you know that, that there was only one church. We call it our church, the Mother Church, the Catholic Church, as we know it today. But it had become corrupt. And I talked to my, uh, my priest friend again this week. Because um, we, we see each other every once in a while at Starbucks, and so we, we'll chat. But um, the, the Pope has actually come out and apologized for many of the things that were done in the 16th century. I didn't know if y'all were aware of that. Ch- uh, John, not this, not the present Pope, but the one about two popes ago. Because it was it was corrupt. Churches can be corrupt. And they actually pursued uh, some of the translators of Scripture, arrested them and burned them at the stake. Simply for translating scripture. Luther, now, not Martin Luther King, the, the um, civil rights leader. And for you young people, not Lex Luther, the, the enemy of Superman. <laughs> but Martin Luther, the reformer, he came along and he was reading scripture because he was a priest, he was a Roman Catholic monk and was trying to be right with God. And he began to, since he was a teacher, he... Had a Bible, which were very few in those days, because people were illiterate, for one thing, and there was no printing presses until Gutenberg. And so he was he started reading the Bible and realized we can be counted righteous through faith. And then he was set afire. And he, one of the things that that he had done, you could take pilgrimages. To Rome and view, for example, you could view uh, part of the dress of Mary and that would give you certain merits uh, uh, in their understanding in the 16th century. And you could could view the apostles' uh, sandals. You could uh, have, there were relics such as the crown of thorns or a part of the thorn, one of the thorns that was on Jesus' head. At least that was the... Ideas that was there. And if you could get merits. And one of the things you could do is declare celibacy. Luther had declared celibacy and poverty and joined a monastery in order to be right with God. Because that, if you took the cowl, C-O-W-L, the, the monk's attire and garb, and you became a monk, that would help you become right with God in inner heaven. He was afraid of God and judgment. And then he read this and he said, I've wasted my youth. I could have been married. <laughs> He's 40 years old, 42 years old, and realizes I gave up marriage in order to get heaven. I didn't realize you could have marriage and heaven too. So he got married. You know who he married? A nun. <laughs> he went to a nunnery who that had the leaders had believed that you can that you're justified by faith you can write your righteous by faith so what's the point of being a nun if I can be just as acceptable to God with a husband and children what's the point of being of a nun celibacy so so all these nuns said, somebody get us out of here. We have nowhere to go. So they said, well, we'll have to marry you to somebody to get you out. So Luther married one of the nuns. He, they actually had a wonderful marriage, and uh, he called her, her, her name was Kate, and he called her My Lord Kate. He said, I, I love two things. I love Galatians, the book of Galatians, and I love my Lord, Kate. <laughs> he said, the only thing about different about being a monk and being a husband was that I wake up in the morning and there's pigtails in my bedside. So, But uh, God help, let him get married. He, he, he saw these kinds of efforts as things that did not make him right with God. And it was based on this idea: you you believe God, and it's counted to you as righteousness. This word "counted," I if you have a pencil, I'd put a, I'd put a circle around that word. That is so strong, um, and it, it it's the Hebrew word "hashab," h a s h a b. It's used in Genesis 38.15 when it says that Judah, one of the descendants of Abraham, saw his daughter-in-law and counted her as a prostitute. Hashab, Genesis 38.15. He thought, categorized her as prostitute. Now, she wasn't actually a prostitute, but he thought, he counted her as one. It's also used in Numbers chapter 18, in verse 26 and 27. It says, when you present your, a contribution to the Lord, a tithe, this Numbers, 20, uh, Numbers chapter 18, verse 27, your contribution shall be counted to you, hashab, as though it were the grain of the threshing floor, that is the whole thing. As the fullness of the wine press. That is, if you when you tithe, Numbers 18, 26, and 27, it is counted by God as the whole thing. That's what a tithe, a tenth, is. When you some of you all gave your tithe this morning, when the when plate came by or the basket came by, you put in your tenth, your offering. Well, God counts that as the whole. He gives you 90% by which you then go and live. But your 10% back to Him is a testimony and an expression of your faith in God and your gratitude to God that He has given you all of it. And this is your assertion that He is the one who keeps you alive and maintains your prosperity. So you give your tithe. God then counts that as the whole. That's in Numbers 18, 27. In 1 Samuel 1, verse 13, uh, Hannah, who was childless, was praying desperately and silently for a child, for God to give her a baby. And the high priest Eli came up, and it says, 1 Samuel 1, 13, he counted her as a drunk woman. Now, she was not a drunk, drunk woman. Hashab does not mean that you that you're counted what you are. It means you're counted what you're not. Tamar, the daughter-in-law of Judah, was counted a prostitute, but she was a daughter-in-law. The tithe is not a whole. It is a 10%, but it's counted as the whole. Hannah was praying, and she was not drunk, but she was counted as drunk. So here, Abraham believes God, and it was counted as righteousness when Abraham himself was not righteous. And this is the glory of this. You can now be right with God without spending 40 years in a monastery. (laughs) Or taking a vow of celibacy or of poverty. Because you could take vows of poverty. You could take vows of silence. Where you never speak for an entire year. Because it gained merit. Among the Jews, you could take the sacrifices. You could do all of the ceremonies of the tabernacle. You could do all of the things connected to the Mosaic covenant. And here, Abraham is counted righteous Bypassing all religious efforts and works and deeds. This this is breathtaking, dear people. No wonder it exploded in Germany and from the Reformation and came over to England where they translated the Bible more and more because people wanted to read about this. The gospel... And as they read, they said, Hallelujah! And they began to throw off all this stuff. And they brought, the Puritans brought with them one of Tyndale's Bibles called the Geneva Bible. In 1607, when they came to Jamestown, Virginia, on that ship was one of those Bibles. And the freedom established here To worship came because the Reformation in 1517 had gone to England, and in 1607 came to America. But it does not so much have to do with you as with your faith in His promise. Now here's the objection. Let me just take a moment and deal with this. Here's the objection, and that is that this makes us hypocrites and provides a license to go sin. Well, if I'm justified by faith and not works, then hallelujah. Party! And so that's that's the objection, and I get that. And I, I want to respond a couple of ways here. One, one is this. First of all, that's the word that is used. This, what I have just given to you, is a fair, accurate interpretation of that verse in Genesis 15.6. Whatever you do with it, however you handle it or abuse it, that's what that verse means and that's what that word counted means. I didn't write it. It was there before I got here. (laughs) So that's the first thing. That we have to embrace the text and let it define us. The second thing that, that I would say is that God doesn't say something is so as if, you know, He just speaks into the air. He says something is so, even though it's not so, in order that it will become so. Uh, boy, that rain is just so nice, isn't it? Uh you can sleep. I cannot. So I'm going, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> i got to make sure I follow my notes here. I'm going to be in napper's land. Um, uh, and, and let me add this to it. When you look at the New Testament, and, of course, in the New Testament, it's we're we're righteous through faith in Jesus Christ. Did you know the Bible never says that we grow in righteousness or justification? Which is the same word, by the way. Same Greek word, same Hebrew word. Justified, made righteous, same word. We never grow in that. We grow in faith. We grow in... You can grow in grace. You can grow in love. There's a lot of you can grow spiritually in your hunger for the word. There's a lot of ways you can grow, but you can't grow into something that's not based on you to begin with. That is that's based on God's gift to you. You can grow in your apprehension of it, your comprehension of it. Which is where we come in. Where pastors come in, teachers come in. We are to help you to know who you are in Christ and grow into what God says you've already become when you became a Christian. One of the things the devil wants to keep the fog over a congregation is to keep it down so it doesn't know who it is. Let me take a minute now and just give you the blessings of such a concept as justification by faith. Uh, Paul wrote in Romans 4, 6, uh, he wrote these words, David speaks of the blessing of those who are counted righteous apart from any works. Well, what are those blessings? David spoke of them. Paul quoted him. Well, the first blessing that we would say that comes when you're counted righteous by God and not letting it come out of your religious efforts, but letting it come to you as a gift from God. The first thing is that it's extravagant. If look, if your righteousness is from God and not from you, then it's God doesn't give petty gifts. He gives, he said, Look, Abraham, look at the stars. Did it, you think Abraham saw, oh, hmm, there's one, mm, two, no, there are millions billions there's more Abraham than more Abraham could see that's the same way righteousness is when it's from God he gives it to you there's more of it than you could ever know it's more lavish it's more extravagant it's more glorious if you could see yourself in Christ as Satan sees you in Christ oh that's what he wants to blind you to in fact it says in 1 John 3:1 that it does not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. But it does not yet appear. You will never appear as righteous in this life as you are literally, really, in Jesus. It'll never appear. You need a new body in order to express it. Here's a second blessing. How can we truly resist Satan and his accusations without the status or the standing of righteousness? If we try to resist Satan based on our performance, how much performance do you need? Boy, you say, Satan, get behind me because... I resist you in my name because I have been such a good boy this week. My life is so good. (laughs) You know that's not going to work. Satan's going to laugh at you. you. Your righteousness is shredded and torn by life. But you can resist him in the righteousness God gives to you through Jesus Christ. He's the accuser of the brethren, Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. But you know how it says we're to resist? Is, do we resist by reliance on our works, on our merit? No, here it is 1 Peter 5 8. Satan walks about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Whom resist? Steadfast in what? Steadfast in? Resist him steadfast in? The faith. The faith. Did anybody say that? Thank you. Oh, thank you. Somebody. The rain's over. Wake up. Now we move ahead. All right. So what are the blessings? If it's God's gift and not my works, then it's extravagant. Second, if it's God's gift... This means I can resist Satan, for I resist him in a status and in a justification and in a standing and in a righteousness that is not my own. Third blessing. It means I can be accepted and then I can accept my brothers and sisters in Christ. This this third one, I think, is vital for us. Here's what Romans 15, 7 says. Therefore, welcome one another or embrace, receive one another as Christ has welcomed you to the glory of God. Now here's the question. How has Christ received you? How has He welcomed you? When you came to him, I mean, he himself said to whoever comes to me, I will know no I cast out. John 6. I think of how Jesus has received and welcomed me, how he has embraced me. And I think of all the times I let him down. I think of the disappointments. I think of crucial moments when I blew it. And yet, Jesus has received me. And I can tell you that He has, to this day, I stand before Him cleansed, free, blessed, and walking with Him in fellowship. But I have so many times when I did not. But, so when He says, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you, that's the standard. That's the measure. Philip Hughes writes about the 2nd century church, which about 200 years after the apostles, and they, there was already beginning to come into the church uh, uh, a very works-oriented, merit-based prescription for being right with God rather than faith in Christ rather than faith in his promise and and he quotes Philip Hughes quotes a second century bishop named Clement of Alexandria and he gave his pastoral advice to those churches who have people who fell into sin after their salvation initial salvation and repentance and he calls it second forgiveness. He said, how do do we, the pastors would say, how do we receive people who have fallen into past sin? After they've already been saved, baptized, and become members of the church, now they've fallen away, fallen into sin. What do we do now? They've come back and they want to be received. Here's what Clement of Alexandria wrote, this second century. He said, they must be subject to rigorous self-humiliation. They must roll before the feet of the elders. They must kneel before God's dear ones. They must go unwashed with sordid clothing. They must have sackcloth and ashes and be estranged from gladness, their face sunken by fastings, that they may then move God toward mercy. (laughs) So let's say you fall. You better not fall under Clement in the 2nd century because you know what you'd have to do? You'd have to roll... you have to get in front of the elders and roll around. That's what he says. Roll at the feet of the elders. So you'd roll around. Kevin, don't forget this. And, and then after you've rolled around a little bit, then you get up and you put on your sackcloth and ashes... And you must be estranged from gladness. Your face sunken by fastings, that you may move God to mercy. Now, the farther you get from the gospel, the the farther you will go into works. Romans 15, 7 As Christ has welcomed you to the glory of God, therefore welcome one another. Number four, blessing. It shapes the church's attitude and message to sinners. This helps us to understand that we need an open door because they can be saved, that there is hope. If it's not based on them having to pull themselves up by the bootstraps and, 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 and by human self-effort and willpower, but if they will trust in the promises of God, that's our message. And I was looking through the Gospels and something I noticed... Um, is that the government in Jesus' day, the Roman government, promoted abortion. Did y'all know they had abortion in the first century? They accepted homosexuality and homosexual marriages. The government did. Roman government. In fact, Nero, who was the president or the Caesar, in Paul's day, married a young man. He had him neutered, and he married him. Now, you thought our president was bad. <laughs> you should have been in Paul's day. But in, in Jesus, in the first century, the Roman government promoted abortion, accepted homosexual marriages pushed forward paganism, idolatry, and imposed high taxes with little benefit back. And yet Jesus never criticized the Roman government. But he leveled his most scathing attacks against who? The Pharisees, the religious leaders. <laughs> Yikes! Why? Because Jesus had come to save sinners. Jesus can save sinners with a bad government. He can save sinners whether there's a Republican or Democrat in the White House. Jesus doesn't need freedom of religion Jesus has come to save sinners and He's been able to save sinners in every kind of government and tyranny and dictatorship and freedom and government since time again. That's why He's here. To save sinners. We, we have to be careful. We have to be careful. In fact, I'm preparing a couple of messages on abortion and homosexuality. Don't tell nobody. But... But man, we have got to preach a message that says to sinners, look, you don't have to wear a tie and be like me. In fact, I don't see anybody in a tie <laughs> this morning. I'm the only guy with a tie. When you go to church, we the church has to reach out and communicate to people who have what? Been thieves, been in jail been viewing porn, women who've had abortions, child abusers, adulterers, homosexuals, repeat offenders, religious hypocrites. We've got to communicate a message that says to every one of them, you can be righteous in a moment of faith in Jesus Christ. We're not going to put a bunch of Baptist hoops for you to jump through. Or... Do we put Presbyterian hoops, Lutheran hoops, Catholic hoops, Mormon hoops? Abraham saw no hoops. He believed God and it was counted. Hashab. You just chase that word down, it's incredible. And it's the basis of the Reformation period and it's the basis of Judaism sinking under Paul's withering exegetical work of the Old Testament in Romans 4. Martin Luther was dying. He'd been away from Wittenberg, his home, for about a month. And I've read this story twice. And this comes from historians. They're not religious necessarily. They're just scholars who've delved into the his letters and other people's notes that was taken. But this is the story of when he died, he, I think just from what I was reading, it looks like he died from a heart attack, but he was away from home. He had his two sons with him. But they came in and they and they laid him out. And they knew, they understood. Luther was very sensitive in terms of his conscience he was he was always even up to the end he was always wondering if he was right and so one of them thought you know the man's dying i'm going to ask him does he want a priest brought in does he want to make confession and so they said dr luther do you after this lifetime of preaching Righteousness by faith. Do you still stand in the doctrine that you have proclaimed and do you still hold to the faith that you have confessed? And Luther quoted a verse of Scripture before he died. He could barely talk, but he said, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believed in him uh, whoever believed in him has eternal life hallelujah we can go to heaven on that that's righteousness that feeds my soul that's my bread I'm done that's it